All right, shall we come before the Lord? Father God, we thank you and praise you for who you are this morning. It is a humbling thought that we can come before our creator God in prayer. It's a humbling thought that we can offer praises of thanksgiving to you. And as your word helps us to learn more about humility this morning, we are grateful and humbled to know that humility is the start of hope. And I pray that that will be evident this morning as we explore your word to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's wonderful to see the spirit working. David was talking about that this morning. Um, didn't coordinate with David on the sermon. And I know Kurt only had a brief look at the ser- at the sermon uh, text earlier this week. And just if you, as we get into the message this morning, um, both David's words with communion and Kurt's song selections, I think will fit really well as we talk about humility this morning, um, coming from Ezra chapter 8. So if you haven't turned there on your device or tablet or actual physical book, go figure. Thank you. Yeah, Paul's got a physical book. All right, please do. Ezra chapter 8. Now, as you may recall from last week, we actually finally met Ezra, right? We've had six chapters of sort of prehistory going on, but now we finally met Mr. Ezra here. And it turns out he's a descendant of Aaron. Of course, you may remember as Kurt or as uh, Bill mentioned, Aaron, of course, was Moses's brother who was appointed by God as the first high priest. Uh, And chapter eight, of course, we're going to begin with some more genealogy, right? It's establishing the family lines of important Jews who are traveling to Israel back to Israel with Ezra in that second wave of returning exiles. And while this may seem trivial to us at first glance, consider the importance God placed on appointing just the Levites to serve in the temple. And get this, despite the tumultuous history of Israel and Judah, God has verifiably preserved the priestly line of Aaron for over 900 years. That's a humbling thought because I don't know about you, but I can barely remember some of my own family history going back to my grandparents from about a hundred years ago. And as Bill pointed out last week, the text indicates that Ezra had the ear of the Persian king whom God caused to bless the people of Israel. And yet Ezra was quick to acknowledge that it was the hand of God at work to accomplish God's divine will. How many of us would be quick to acknowledge God, you know, but take a portion of that glory for ourselves? Am I right? But it seems that Ezra may be able to teach us a few things about humility. And specifically this morning, we're going to look that humility begins with a right understanding. And if you stay awake for one point this morning, that's the one point I want you to pay attention to. Okay. Almost as important is that humility grows as we repent and pray. And the other thing that we'll notice through Ezra's life about humility is that humility is obvious when it's present. And with that, let's dive into Ezra chapter 8. Theology of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. 
Of the sons of Phineas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Zechariah, who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pehath Moab, Eliahuanai, the son of Zariah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jahaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Adin, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Alathiah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shalomith, the son of Josephiah, with him 160 men. Of the sons of Abai, Zechariah, the son of Abai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, not Asgar, Asgad, Johanna, the son of Hakatad, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonaika, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jeul, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthiah, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and, we camped, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jariah and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Cassiphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Cassiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Well, apparently Nathan was a popular name at the time, but let's dig deeper and understand what's going on here. And, and to do that first, let's recall Ezra's mission as recorded back in chapter seven, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now this implies that despite the temple having been rebuilt and the sacrifices reinstituted, the people in Israel weren't living according to God's laws. Nehemiah gives us this insight in chapter one, verse three. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, remember, this is 80 years after that first wave of exiles had returned. 
So it really isn't surprising that this might be the case, especially when we think of how quickly we forget the gospel, sometimes within moments of our leaving the Sunday gathering. Now, during that 80 years, the Jews who stayed in Babylon continued to live their lives and even thrive, especially when Esther became queen. At that point, the remaining families would have lived outside of Israel and Judah for almost 130 years. If they'd been living according to Jeremiah 29 verses 5 to 7, you can look that one up for yourself. You can understand the reluctance of some of them to leave the roots they'd put down in Persia. And yet, if you do the math, the second wave of returning exiles would have numbered in excess of 4,000 men, women, and children. Of course, Ezra certainly did the math and the genealogy and found that while there were priests of some sort, there were no Levites among this group of 4,000. And again, the Levites were specifically set apart by God for temple service. So it would have been important for Ezra to bolster their ranks in Jerusalem to help with his mission of teaching God's law and for taking charge of the offerings destined for Jerusalem and for the temple. Now, while that 4,000 people is significantly less than the first wave of returnees, it was large enough and a large enough group that Ezra had to gather them outside of Babylon at a place the Jews were familiar with, a waterway in the Euphrates Valley known to them as Ahava. And incidentally, Ahava means love in Hebrew. Now nearby, there was an enclave of Levites and temple servants at this place called Kesaphia. And we know it had to be in the area because the group only stayed at Ahava three days during which time, of course, these Levites and servants joined them. And while scripture doesn't add any commentary, I do find it a bit odd that despite the temple having been completed some 60 years prior, there's still a large enclave of Levites and temple servants in Persia. Now this might be related to the continued state of ruin in Jerusalem, because remember that while the temple had been rebuilt, the wall and the gates had not been. So the city probably wasn't well suited to support an influx of Levites, temple servants, and their families. So let's take a look here at Mr. Ezra, right? He's tight with the king of Persia. He's gathered together Levites and another group of exiles to return to Jerusalem. They've got a four-month, 900-mile journey ahead of them. Now you'd think with that kind of a journey, they'd be anxious to get started, right? And you'd think Ezra would be pretty proud of all that he'd accomplished so far. Well, let's see what happens next. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. Wow. This man's already been shown tremendous favor by God and he doesn't take that past favor for granted. He organizes a fast for the whole group 
that they might humble themselves before the Lord. Now in the Jewish tradition, fasting was a time to totally abstain from food and drink often for 25 hours from sundown to nightfall the next day. So the people could devote themselves to prayer with an emphasis on repentance. Imagine going, doing that before a long walk through the desert, right? No carb loading before game time for these folks. And, and note the desire of Ezra's heart to honor God with his statement about God's power. And while his statement before the king doesn't explicitly say that God would protect them from all harm on the journey, such a safe passage would surely be a testament to God's power and not the king's because no armed escort was present. Now you may be thinking, okay, there's 4,000 of these exiles. Who would think to attack that large of a group? Well, let's read on a little bit to understand the danger that they were facing. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold. 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold in the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Now, in considering the danger they were in, we need to remember that this large of a group would have had to pass through or near territories of former enemies of the nation of Israel. And these various enemies had long memories for wrongdoings. A procession of 4,000 people could certainly look like an invading army. So the potential for trouble with the locals was high. And while they may have looked like an army from a distance, (laughs) it's not likely that many of them were trained for battle. Such training would have been a threat to the Persians. Oh, and all that gold and silver and things that they were carrying. In today's dollars, they would be worth, get this, somewhere around $160 million, give or take. That's a pretty tempting target for thieves, especially given that the exiles would have been slowed by having children and household goods and heavy gold and silver that they're carrying with them, of course. And that big of a withdrawal from the royal treasury would have been noticed. Let's return to the text. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushers. By the way, we came to Jerusalem and there we remained three days on the fourth day within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest son of Uriah, 
And with him was Eleazar, son of Phineas, And with them were the Levites. Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. Are we there yet? You know, it's kind of funny that the writer of Ezra skips over that entire four month journey, right? And he goes right to the successful delivery of the people and the priests and the gold and the silver and the sacrifices in Jerusalem. And that's kind of in keeping with the rest of how this book is written. So it makes you wonder what's the application here, right? Well, we can certainly celebrate God's faithfulness to Ezra and these returning exiles. And of course we can stand firm on his promises of faithful to faithfulness to us, right? But I think there's more for us to learn here specifically about humility. In fact, I would submit to you that humility is key to standing firm. So let's return to what we know about Ezra. He was of course descended from Aaron. So he could certainly be proud of his lineage. Well, at least most of it. (laughs) If you don't get that joke, go back and read, you know, (laughs) Kings and uh, Chronicles and all that and see what happened with some of the priests in Israel. He was a scribe and a scholar. So it'd be easy for him to have been puffed up with pride over his knowledge. He was a counselor to the king of Persia. That'd definitely be something to brag about, right? You know, drop that thing at a party sometime. Hey man, I'm, you know, I'm counselor to the king of Persia. He was used by God to gather a large group of followers. I think of the swagger and arrogance of any number of celebrity pastors in our day, right? And yet there's no hints of any of these expressions of pride recorded in scripture in regard to Ezra. Now, other biblical figures, yes, even some of the good ones. Scripture talks about those little character flaws. Not about Ezra. Doesn't mean he didn't have them, but it's not important to to the scriptural story here. Now, the Bible has a lot to say in favor of humility. So much so that you could easily write a book about it. In fact, several people actually have. I can recommend a few if you'd like to talk afterwards but I'll keep to what Ezra can help us to learn about humility. First, humility starts with having a right understanding, a right understanding of who God is and what our position is in relation to him. He's the creator. We're his creation. And as I spoke about a few weeks ago, we were of course created by God to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we know this because he's told us about himself and how to relate to him in his word. And we see this in Ezra, recalling again that Ezra had set his start, his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now there's a lot of laws and statutes and things 
right? But to make this manageable, let's recall just the 10 commandments. Okay. Right. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet. Now, if someone follows all 10 of these, as Ezra had set his heart to do, the first four would reflect a heart humbly obedient to God. The second six would indicate a heart humbly living in community and obeying all 10 would glorify God, not self. And more often not than not, pride is involved at some level when we break any of these commandments. Now we have things way better than Ezra. We have the entire Bible to study, to learn about God. And the Bible rightly studied is an inexhaustible well of insight into the infinite power and majesty of our creator. It's like looking into the night sky. It's hard to not be overwhelmed at who he is. And yet he desires a personal relationship with us, you and me. A relationship that starts with an invitation to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Those are two of the hardest and most humbling things a person can do. And that brings us to our second point about humility. It requires a heart prepared to repent and pray. See, if we look back to verse 21, we see that despite all the God-directed favor shown by the king to Ezra and the exiles, that's the name of my next Kletzmer band, by the way, Ezra and the exiles. Despite all that, Ezra didn't take it, take that favor for granted. He didn't presume upon God. He led the people into fasting before God. And of course, the prayer part of the fasting is made clear in the passage that they would have safe travels to Jerusalem. The repentance part of the fasting isn't stated, but we can infer a few things about what that might've involved. I see the obvious one, of course, is the usual of bevy of sins that we all commit in any given day. The less obvious one might be the fact that these folks had lingered in Babylon long after the door had been opened for them to return to Jerusalem. Perhaps they were proud of all they had built in Babylon and their comfortable life. Perhaps they weren't ready to humble themselves in obedience to God when he asked them to start over back in Israel. Now be careful here because a quick reading of this passage without understanding it in the greater context of scripture might give wrong to some rise to some wrong thinking. The quick read can give the impression that Ezra acted to gather the people reject a military escort, and then ask God to bless his own efforts. How many of us do that? Bringing God into the equation after we've pridefully bulldozed our way forward. But see, in context, we know Ezra to be a student and follower of the law. He would know the prophecies of Jeremiah. He would know the wisdom of Proverbs. He would know the prayers of David. 
And while not directly stated in the book, it makes sense that much prayer would have been put forth before anything in this, any of this took place. Just as his contemporary Nehemiah did, as recorded in Nehemiah chapter 1. See, prayer reflects a humble heart. Because rightly understood, it's about submitting our heart and will to God's heart and will. Our heart thinks what's best for us is the comfortable life we have here in Babylon. God's heart knows that what is truly best for us is in Jerusalem, which can only be reached by a difficult journey. And of course, we have to take a closer look at repentance. The first step of repentance is hard because none of us like to admit when we're wrong, that we're sinners. And even if we admit that we're sinners, the humble second step of turning away from that sin, that's the second part of repentance, is also hard because at some level we like our sin. And if we humble ourselves by turning from it, we're submitting to God's law and sovereignty. We are in a way abdicating our thrones. The believing part is also hard and humbling. The kind of belief outlined in scripture requires living in front of the world, standing firm in ways that will subject us to ridicule, slander, or worse. And scripture requires us to respond in ways that are contrary to those of the world, like turning the other cheek, like loving our enemies. Our third and final point about humility is that it is obvious when present. Now there's plenty of people who are obvious in their pridefulness. I'm sure we've all seen them. They boast about their accomplishments or their knowledge or whatever. And then there are those who play the ah shucks routine. They kind of downplay themselves in a way that's actually attention seeking and thus prideful. You know that old saying, I'm proud of my humility, you know? Well, then there's Ezra, right? God's poured out a lot on him. He's gifted him with a passion for the law. He's gifted him with favor of the king. He's gifted him with the ability to inspire and draw followers. And yet scripture describes him as constantly pointing to God and exercising his God-given gifts to benefit the kingdom and turning to God in repentance and prayer. These things are presented in today's passage in a very matter of fact way. They're just part of who Ezra is. They're not attention seeking devices. So how do these three facets of humility, a right understanding, a commitment to repentance and prayer, and its obvious presence contribute to standing firm. And remember our, our theme for the year, standing firm on the truth of God's word in the assurance of Jesus Christ and with one another. Well, believe it or not, they lead to a confident Christian. And see, confidence is not contrary to humility. Humility isn't about being self-effacing. It's about being God glorifying. 
And the confident Christian can stand firm when the truth of God's word is questioned because they know God's word to be true. And they do so not by being belligerent or hateful or mocking when confronted. That's how the world tends to respond. But by sharing the truth in love. And the confident Christian can stand firm in the assurance of Jesus Christ because they've seen the results of repentance and prayer in their own hearts. Sins mortified and a life changed. The confident Christian can stand firm with one another because they have a right understanding of who God is, who they are in relationship to God and who their brothers and sisters are in relationship to God. Namely that everyone called by God is an important part of the body of Christ with a unique set of giftings to serve the kingdom. And all these things are obvious in how the person lives before God and man. They aren't trying to draw either positive or negative attention to themselves. They simply live in ways that reflect Christ. Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, starting in verse 6. Jesus himself put it this way in Mark 10. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not, shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus isn't proposing this as a recipe for moving up the church corporate ladder, folks. After all, he was appointed by God to serve as he did. He's commanding Christians in general and leaders especially to follow himself in the path of humility. As I wrestled with this passage, I was, of course, compelled to take stock of my own heart. And if I'm honest, there are some areas of my life where I do okay in the humility department. Other areas, not so much. But friends, an honest self-examination of our hearts is good and biblical. But oftentimes, humbly inviting a brother or sister to give us some feedback can be very helpful and necessary. Choose that person well and weigh carefully their feedback to see if the marks of humility are growing in your heart. I pray they are. And let's come before our Lord. Father God, we so often want to take the reins. We want to take charge. We think we can do things better. And inevitably, we fail and we fall. But when we humbly come before you 
and repent and believe, there's forgiveness, there's hope, there's joy. (laughs) Because it's your power. It's your will working for our good. And it's your working to glorify yourself. What an awesome privilege it is to be used as your hands and feet in working your will in this world. Let us never forget that it's your power, that you deserve the glory. Give us humble hearts like Ezra. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.